0: In the last few weeks, um, we've been studying going on Sunday mornings, felt inclined to talk about forgiveness and repentance and that process that God has given to us whereby we can reconcile with one another. And so um, it took longer than what I expected to get through that um, process and through some of those thoughts. We did use the book of Genesis, the story of Joseph, as our template to kind of observe these things played out, and then we tried to talk about the principles that were being applied in each of these stories. And um, as we've gone through this, there's been a number of people come up to me and ask some questions, some unique situations that can occur in the process of doing this, and certainly this is a... Difficult at times to know when to apply what principles the Bible teaches us and uh, when something is fitting and when something is perhaps could be replaced with something in the Bible that would be more fitting um, or a better response that we could have. And so, um, as I contemplated that, you're going to notice I've got a notebook up here because I wrote some of those things down and have been contemplating those for some time and uh, felt like tonight, this morning, we tried to finish that up, but tonight. Um, I kind of want to deal with the unique situations and questions that arise in regards to this process being filled out because sometimes what we do observe is that the way that Joseph's stories ended is not the way that real life goes. Sometimes um, it would be wonderful if it did go that way every time, that if we remain faithful to upholding, whether we're the offended or the offender, Things would play out and it would have a neat and tidy ending as we read in Genesis chapter 50 tonight, Uh, but no doubt you've experienced situations that were not that way, where you wanted reconciliation and it never occurred, where you wanted to make peace with someone that had offended you and that never occurs, and there's a, a void or a feeling that something is undone. And I'll confess to you tonight, as you already know, I don't know all the answers to this. Um, I've written down four different questions that I want to try to bring before you, and then perhaps do something a little different, and that is kind of open it up to the floor to help contribute whatever answers that you might feel like are lacking, or ask an additional question that has arisen in your mind as we've tried to go through this um, over the last number of Sunday mornings. And so Um, One of the questions that was asked, I thought was an appropriate one, that uh, I kind of laughed at in one sense, not because it's a bad question, but because it's it's a good question that needs to be answered, and that is this, should we go through this process for every offense that is made against us? And uh, I kind of laughed at that, because if we did go through this process every time, we would be spending most of our days going through this process, (laughs) right of confronting somebody if you think of your spouse or your children or a coworker and daily we are in some sense sinned against or offended as to somebody's actions and so do we need to every single time somebody commits a minor offense against us confront them in some big way and say you've sinned against me and you need to repent of your sin and uh and go through that process. And my answer to that is no. I don't think we do. Um, I think when an offense is committed, there are three possible responses that the Bible gives us. Uh, one of them is one no doubt you're familiar with. It's found in the book of First uh, Peter chapter 4. And I think this fits in a situation where perhaps somebody has offended you in a minor way. Perhaps they've made a crude joke. Or they've said something and slighted you or insinuated something towards you. And it just leaves you frustrated, angry, offended. And in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, is actually a quote from the book of Proverbs chapter 17 that the apostle Peter is alluding to. And he says this, And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, For charity or love shall cover the multitude of sins. And that's, again, a quote from the book of Proverbs. And I'm going to turn back to where that verse is at and uh, read that verse in its original context. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 9. It says this He that covereth a transgression seeketh love, but he that repeateth a matter separateth very friends. So when we take this verse as it's originally intended, I think what he's showing us here that there are some times when people offend us and the first response that we ought to have if it's not going to present a stumbling block to us engaging in fellowship with them is to cover their sin in love. Is to determine that that sin is not going to come between us and the offender and that it is not worthy to come before us and try to have the process of reconciliation because we recognize that in this world, as we mentioned this morning, it's impossible that offenses are going to come. And as long as those things can be dismissed in our minds without preventing fellowship from occurring, then the first, and I would argue the most preferred method that we ought to address the sin of others towards us in is to simply seek to cover it with love. It ought to, as this scripture tells us in Proverbs, one thing that we definitely shouldn't do is to go around to everybody but that person and discuss that matter about how that person offended us. Because it tells us here that when we repeat a matter or when we repeat somebody's offense against us to everyone but that person, the end result is that it's going to separate us from fellowshipping with them and then also separate others from having full fellowship with that person for an offense that, in truth, may not have been repeated honestly. We've often heard it said, there's two sides to every story. And when someone is coming to you, not in order to resolve a conflict or seek wisdom as to how to resolve a conflict, but merely to gossip about the offense or the problems that that person's behavior has caused, I would first say, be careful to believe what that person says, because in the very least, if it is not inaccurate, it is very likely that it is incomplete. There is more to the story that could be fleshed out. And so before making an opinion or, or taking a judgment or even at times giving advice to someone, it would be prudent of us to say, you know what, I'm going to withhold that. Because what the scripture teaches us here is that if this is not going to be a breach in their fellowship... Why ought it I allow it to be a breach in my fellowship with that person when the intended result or perhaps what Satan can use it or our sinful hearts can use it to do is just cause a separation between us and them. And so the first preferred response when there is a minor offense committed against us is to merely cover that in love and accept that that is not worthy of being a breach between us and the other person. The second one, is we talked about two weeks ago, the response that we ought to have to sin is to confront it. And so one of the questions that would arise in my mind is, when do I know to cover it? And when do I know to confront it? And I'll agree that sometimes that can be a very difficult line to know what to do. Because I've often experienced the case where the person that will be on the receiving end of confrontation is not mature enough spiritually to handle the confrontation. It will either crush them, so deeply offend them that they're unwilling to have fellowship restored between the two of you. And so I'll confess this this evening that that's a very difficult thing that requires, first of all, God's discernment and knowing when to confront somebody versus cover that person in love. One thing that I have tried to live by and I see in the scriptures is that when that offense of your brother and sister becomes a perpetual stumbling block for you towards God or towards one another... Then it likely should necessitate you going to that person and confronting their sin that it is and, and communicate to them. This is becoming a stumbling block now i don 't know if you've experienced before I certainly have where I 've sat in church with somebody before and their sin has caused me to stumble in so much that when I am sitting in the house of God, I cannot freely worship because that Sin is causing me to stumble. I find myself constantly glancing at that person, thinking about what they're thinking about, wondering how that sin is affecting them or whether they're remorseful, or let alone repentant of what they have done. And I would say at that point when it is continuously disrupting your fellowship with God is probably the time that you ought to go to that person and try to make things right. I say this with the understanding that in our culture at large in America, confrontation is almost avoided at all costs. And so I think we as the Lord's people at this point have to identify that our culture and perhaps the way that we have assimilated to the way our culture functions needs to stop and we need to change the way that we function within the confines of our church, even if it may differ largely to the way that people function out in the world that we live in. Or in other words, the processes that we carry out, even though it might not be a tenable solution out in the world, ought to be one here. And yet, biblical confrontation between two Christians, a prerequisite to that is trust. I must trust if you confront me about an offense that I have committed against you, that you are not selfishly seeking your own, but that you are sincerely trying to eliminate any stumbling block between you and God and between me and you. And so first of all, love must be present and trust must be present between a church. That's why I believe it's so important in the house of God that not only here, but outside of here, we are part of one another's lives, not just in a religious setting, but beyond a religious setting because it is in those settings when we are part of one another's daily lives and we're seeking instruction and help and encouragement in the the things that we do outside of here, it develops our relationship it breeds trust among one another so that when confrontation is necessary that is already present that we might be able to dismiss the effects of sin and reconcile fully from whatever offense might have occurred in other words I think it's a healthy thing for a church to get together not just on Sunday morning to worship it's necessary because it builds trust it builds affection and it it it, makes a a relationship sturdy enough to endure the consequences of sin and the confrontation that might be necessary. We ought to cover it if we can. If not, as Matthew chapter 18, and I didn't take the time to read it, we ought to confront it. And the question has, well, I, I confronted that person. What if they don't listen? Well, Jesus gives us an answer to that, doesn't he? Now, In Matthew chapter 18, and I'm not going to read it. I'm sure know the text. You can look. I believe it's verse 15 down to around verse 19 or 20. Jesus gives us the prescription that we ought to employ in this manner. And churches have very often done it correctly in a formal situation. But at times, I think it takes away from the effect when we formalize that action. Or in other words, if a brother has offended you and you go to him and you try to make it right, and you try to bury the hatchet, as they say, and you you try to confront the sin and get things taken care of, and it doesn't work. Very often what a person has done is they then come to the church, and the church gets a committee established, and the committee goes to that person and tries to work with them and win them back. And yet I don't believe that's the intent that Jesus had in Matthew chapter 18. Rather, what Jesus intended us to do is to go to a couple of people who are spiritual men or women that are, would be viewed by both parties as neutral, fair arbiters who will listen, who care, have mutual love. I'm not to pick my cronies in hopes that no matter what happens within that interaction, they're always going to side with me. I'm not going to beforehand try to prepare my witness before we come to this meeting so that they can have all the background as to how horrible of a person that this is so that when they come into this meeting, they're already assuming the worst of this person's behavior and actions. Rather, I'm to take a couple people with me, trying to allow them to listen to both sides of the story People who know the scriptures, that they might be to employ God's eternal truth in order to reconcile us. And certainly if that cannot be reconciled, if we cannot see those things through, then we're to go to the church. But in saying that, I don't want to go too far into that. That's kind of a a different topic than I'm wanting to get into. We're first to cover them. We're second to confront them. Then I have another question, and this is kind of part of this first question, and it leads to our third response towards something like this: How should I respond to someone who is always placing stumbling blocks in my way and whose actions point to false repentance? This is a hard one. Do you know those those um, tempted to say fake Christians who like to employ the Bible, who like to employ Christian slogans when it's convenient, but who are not truly seeking to obey the commandments of Christ regardless of the cost. And at times, they attempt to take advantage of your obedience to Christ? Because they know something like this. In the book of, in the scriptures, Peter asked the Lord, Lord, if a brother offend me seven times, do I forgive him seven times in a day? And Jesus says seven times 70. So, as Christians, if we take that technically, that's 490 times in a day. If I offend you, you're supposed to forgive me. And so there are people, not out for the good of reconciliation, not an attempt to honor God, who knows that you are bound by this command and who take that as a license to abuse people that they're in a relationship with. How do we deal with people like that? Because on one hand, there is a sense to which if a brother offends me, And I perceive the fruits of his repentance are genuine. My forgiveness, as much as I am able and God grants to me, ought to be limitless. And at the same time, I'm not so ignorant and and unable to perceive that there are some people who will use the doctrines of Christ just for their own advantage. And that's where I would come to a third principle that I think is found in the Scriptures, and it is found in the book of Romans, chapter 16. Here's what it says. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly." And by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. There are some people who, as I've already stated, intend to use the doctrines of Christ, as it's stated here, for their own selfish purposes. And as we've attempted, if we have attempted, to forgive, to restore fellowship... And yet they persist in actions which cause division or which also are offensive. Here's what I've got in a different version. It says this. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to keep your eyes on those who cause dissensions, and listen to this, and create obstacles or introduce temptations to commit sin. There are some people that are unfortunately like that. They wear the name Christian. He tells us here, mark those people and avoid them. There is nothing obligating the the Christian in the scriptures to have close fellowship with everyone. If there are people, you know, there there was a time in my life where this happened, where I noticed that every time this person came into my life, stress and problems seemed to enter. And every time, for just a few weeks, I wasn't around this person, peace of mind and peace of life prevailed. And I didn't notice that until one day I began to think about the root of my turmoil in that moment And I thought, it's always this person. Every time this person is around. And I happened to stumble upon this verse, and I exercised it. And I told the person that. I said, I have tried to confront you. I have tried to ask you to stop this behavior, and you refuse to. And so I'm gonna tell you, right now, I cannot have you in my life. Now again, this person gave every excuse in the world, tried to dodge those things, and I wasn't looking to argue, and I wasn't looking to recall everything that had ever taken place. But I separated from this person for about a year. And there were opportunities where this person saw it. Let's get together. Let's meet for lunch. Let's do different activities together. And I just kept saying, I just can't. He was under no illusion as to the reason why. And finally, after about a year or a year and a half, this person came and said, listen, I'm really sorry, and I want to be a part of your life, and I'm sorry that my actions have prevented it, and so guess what? I tried again, and thankfully, it worked, because I think in one sense, what it showed that person is, listen... You do not have an invitation to come in my life and wreak havoc as you see fit. And if that is the case, I'm going to do what I think the Bible teaches, and that is exclude you from my presence. I wrote something down in regards to this one. You are no more obligated to subject your emotions and mind to proven toxic people than you are your body to a toxic environment. I believe that's the case. There's some other scriptures. First Corinthians chapter fifteen, verse thirty-three tells us. I'll read that very briefly, as a illustrating this principle. This is Christ quoting here, or excuse me, Paul quoting here, and I won't get into the context of this whole quote and what it's intended for, but I do believe that it illustrates this point. Many of you likely know it, it says, Be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good manners or good morals, is what it's meaning to say there. If I know that somebody is having a corrupting influence upon my life, I certainly have the right to exclude myself or them from my life. And so this evening I would argue this, or I would say this rather. I think there are three responses that we can have to people who have sinned against us. The preferred one is to cover it in love. The second one and next preferable one is to confront the person and see that the issues have been resolved. Finally, if neither of those can be accomplished, there is nothing unbiblical in a person doing exactly what the church does when sin persists within the church, and that is to exclude that person and not have that person mark them that cause division among you and avoid them as the scripture teaches. Question number three. got two more, and then I'll be finished tonight and, and open it up to the floor for any comments or thoughts, or I hope that you can add some things to these truths. What if someone has sinned against you, but they never repent or have already died? I think this particular question arises from an emotional place very often. If you're a person that likes consensus, harmony, who avoids conflict, who when you know conflict exists, it keeps you up at night and you can't rest or when you're in the presence of that person you're highly uncomfortable because you know there is something between the two of you and you want with all of your heart to resolve this. And yet, it takes two to resolve a conflict like that. And that person will not repent. That person may not Accept your repentance. And we want it to end as Joseph did. Even if it's years and years later, and I think there's this romanticized notion in our minds at times that we can think someday it's going to happen. And then as time passes and years turn into decades and decades go further than that, and then it becomes clear it's not going to happen. Or... The person dies and forever dismisses the possibility of reconciliation. It can very often cause seemingly unending emotional trials. I want to resolve this, but I can't. Now, I'll say this. These, these things that I'm bringing up tonight, they don't, they don't solve the problem there are some sin and problems in this world that are not able to be solved in this world. And so tonight, as I'm, I'm giving this, I don't want to be simplistic, because we live in a broken world. And there's not always redemption to be found in the end, despite what Hollywood might try to portray. But I do believe that the story of Joseph does give us a way as Christians to cope with the situation such as this. Because if you remember in Joseph's case, he experiences this terrible trauma far beyond likely what any of us or most of us have ever experienced in life at his brother's betrayal and their actions. And then he goes through these series of false accusations and he gets to prison, and he's really low. And yet I find it noteworthy that on two occasions his response is really important for us to look into. Because you remember when his brothers, when he finally reveals himself to his brothers, he says, I'm Joseph. Notice his immediate words after saying this. There came a point, what I discern from Joseph's answers, there came a point when he is emotionally traumatized from all these things that have taken place. But there comes a point where he steps away from the interpersonal and zooms out to a, from, to a bigger perspective. Because here's what he says in Genesis 45, verses 5 through 8. It says this. Excuse me, I'll back up to verse 4. And Joseph said unto his brothers, come near to me, I pray you. And they came near and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Now, therefore, be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that you sold me hither. For God did send me before you to preserve life. For these two years hath the famine been in the land, and yet there are five years in the which there shall neither be earing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. there comes a point where we have to accept that these events have occurred amidst God's permissive will. We have to step beyond the interpersonal anguish that is weighing us down and accept an overarching truth, and that is this. God could have prevented all of this if he had chosen to. God could have prevented perhaps provoked repentance in this person if he had chosen to. God could have prevented the sin from ever occurring in the first place if he had chosen to. But God didn't choose to do that. And as my focus is set staunchly upon reconciliation, God has allowed a situation to play out where full restoration is not going to happen. And I don't understand God's purposes, and I don't understand why God would permit these things to occur. But I have to trust that God's understanding in allowing all of these things to take place surpass my own understanding. And this is often where people are very unwilling to accept this truth. I can't control it. I want desperately for God's will to be done. And when I say God's will, I mean his ideal will. What he has prescribed to take place. That repentance would occur and reconciliation and full restoration would happen. That's what I want above everything, God. And you know my heart. And yet it's not going to happen. I wrote something down I want to read to you. It says this. There are times when full fellowship can never be restored and the ideal resolution cannot occur. At this point, we must shift our focus. Some people waste the remainder of their life bitter and resentful towards someone that will never or can never make things right. Paul says, There are times when we must forget those things which are behind and press towards the mark. If we were to go to Philippians chapter 3 where this is found, he's talking about apprehending, grabbing a hold of, apprehending that for which I was apprehended. He's talking about life's purpose. He's wanting to grab a hold of the reason why God grabbed a hold of him. And he prescribes to us at some times that what we must do is forget those things which are behind us. And look to those things which are before us that are heavenly things, that are spiritual things. And then use our energy not to reanalyze everything that that has not occurred in God's desires or his ideal will but rather press towards the mark of the high calling of Christ. And in one sense, we have to move on and simply choose to trust God in what we don't understand. Otherwise, I'm sure you've met people who they allow something that took place years and years ago to define every action that occurs for the rest of their life. And that that sin that was sinned against them, perhaps as a child, as an adult, in everything they do and in the personality they have developed, it is like a taskmaster. It says, you cannot have joy now because think of what happened. You cannot be free to live life Because remember, this is what this person did. And this is the pain. And you'll never have that ideal thing that you always desired. Satan is clever. And he often uses people's past to control their present and direct their future. Continues and says this, Joseph zooms out from the interpersonal turmoil and views his life from the vantage points excuse me, the vantage point of Providence. When unresolved, inexplicable pain plagues our lives. We must find peace knowing God's permissive will means it is for our good. We must accept that some things in this fallen world will never be resolved, but choose to trust God anyway. That's easy to say. But that's really hard to do. We must have God's grace to help us to cut those things which are behind us very often. But let me say this. It is imperative that you do it. It's important. Because as we said just a few weeks ago by not by allowing those things to control our lives to affect our lives to become taskmasters in our lives it is not just going to affect us it's going to affect all of those it can affect rather all of those whom our life can influence it's vital therefore that we take the attitude he does here in chapter 45 when he reveals himself to his brothers he says i know what you intended I know how it all played out. But at some point during Joseph's journey to the throne, God revealed to him that there was a undercurrent providential reason why all this was happening. And Joseph began to trust and hone in on that more than he did the potential grudge that he could hold against his brother. chapter 50, what we read this morning, he repeats the very same thing. It's as though he's telling them, listen, you don't understand. I don't care what you purposed in it. I don't care what happened in the natural perception. God had a deeper reason. And that's where the very famous and rightfully so verse in verse 20 of chapter 50. But as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good. To bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive, um, I believe that, and I would offer that to you as something encourage you towards whenever there has been unresolved and situations that can never be resolved in your life. Last one here, and I'll be finished. This one has caused me some trouble, and so I certainly am um, welcome your input. After we finish tonight, can a person be forgiven and still be, quote, punished for their sin? I'm going to turn to the book of Numbers, chapter 14. I'm going to look at verse 19 through verse 24. Now, what's taking place here is that the children of Israel um, had wandered in the wilderness. They sent those spies over into the promised land to spy it out. If you remember, ten of them came back, and they give an evil report. Caleb and Joshua give a good report to Moses. And the people cry all night, fearful, as to what would happen to them if they go fight all those giants, in their words. And then God tells us earlier in this chapter that he is willing, perhaps desirous, to destroy this generation, to raise up a new generation through Moses. And Moses intercedes here. And that his intercession begins in verse 19. It says this, Pardon, I beseech thee, the iniquity of this people, according to the greatness of thy mercy, as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word. But as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Because all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have tempted me now these ten times and have not hearkened to my voice, surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he hath another spirit with him and hath followed me fully, him will I bring into the land whereinto he went, and his seed shall possess it. Now again, here's a situation where God says, I will pardon their sin, but I'm going to punish them. And I think what this illustrates, and there are other places in scriptures that do this, is that there is a difference between forgiveness and trust. As an analogy, let's consider that um, you entrusted me with your checkbook for some reason. Or with your wallet for some reason. And I stole something from you. And finally you catch me and you confront me and I say, I'm really sorry. Will you forgive me? And you forgive me. And then another occasion occurs and you give me your book again. Or your wallet again. And I abuse that again. And you say, you confront me. And I confess. And I return what I've stolen. On the third time, what should you do? Should you give me your checkbook? And if you refuse to, what if I look at you and say, well, then you never forgave me. And I would say this, there is a big difference between forgiving somebody and trusting someone again. God does command us to forgive people. But once a person has committed a specific sin, at times, they can lose the rights, the privileges that God or someone else has granted them because no longer can they be trusted with that responsibility or privilege. And so there is nothing incompatible with someone saying, yes, I have forgiven you, but... Here's the result of what you have done. And in this particular case, I think there is a, that's what's going on here. God is desirous to trust this generation as his people with the land that has been promised to him. But they've demonstrated on 10 separate occasions after they had left the uh, uh, e- e- Egyptian bondage, they had proven that they could not be this called out obedient people to fulfill God's promise in the promised land. And so God is saying, no, I'm done. I'm going to first wipe them off the face of the earth. And then after Moses intercedes, he says, okay, I will honor your request. But what I will say is they are losing the privilege of going to the promised land. That privilege is now going to be enjoyed by their offspring. And not one of them, save Caleb, will be allowed to go there. And so Jesus, or excuse me, the scripture set out this example in my estimation, where a person can be forgiven and yet simultaneously justly punished for what they have done. And so I wanted to bring those four questions. These are four questions that had been brought to my attention. I felt like they were worthy of our consideration tonight because there are unique things that can transpire within the relationships. And I believe that Much of what we've laid out the last few weeks covers a good majority of situations, but there are things that are very difficult. And, again, I've I've already said I don't pretend to have all those solutions tonight, nor have I answered no doubt every question that you have. But if there's anything that we can learn, especially from some of this, is that the Scriptures do have an answer even when things get difficult and sticky in our own relationships. There is a sufficiency to God's word. Very often there, at least in my lifetime, there has been this projected attitude that on the easy stuff, you go to God, but then when things get hard, you turn to the wisdom of the world. That's not the case. God has prescriptions for us if we'll seek to better understand what his will is for us. And so... I bring that before you tonight and um, I want to open it up to you. Does somebody have a comment or something you'd like to add to some of the things that have been brought up either this evening or over the last number of weeks? Maybe you had something you thought, I want to add this to what's being said or or you have a question that you can bring before all of us and we can all try to answer tonight. I hope, I pray that These things have given you worthwhile instruction to consider. Um, They certainly have me, and I'm thankful that the Lord has left these patterns behind for us that we can try to employ. And I want to say this. The word observed is a lot better than the word believed. Some of these things are difficult to do and easy to discuss. I really want to encourage you to observe the things that we brought before you. A failure to do so can cause a significant wedge to grow between you and God. And in being exposed to many people's problems, and I don't doubt that you are the same, I'm amazed at how oftentimes the solution is very simple When I say simple, I mean understandable. And yet, the person is unwilling to employ them because when practiced, it slays that prideful man within us. There's a place for us to go to a person and say this, I've sinned against you because long ago you offended me and I didn't come to you. I should have, two decades ago, come to you because you said this, you did this. And ever since then, it has been a terrible stumbling block to me. And before we talk about that, I want to ask for your forgiveness for my sin and being unwilling to come and to provoke you or to try to make things right. I am afraid that there are many Christian people who have a lot of weight that they carry. A lot of bitterness that they hold on to. That God, and and, and listen, it is a wedge between you and God. It is. Leave your gift at the altar. Leave it there. And go and make things right. I truly believe that there is a Christian fellowship that God means for us to enjoy with one another that is richer and deeper than probably most of us have experienced. That, yes, though we be sinful creatures, God has given us the capacity at times to extend and receive divine forgiveness. He empowers us to do that. He allows us. He graces us with the ability to extend mercy and forgiveness beyond our own heart's capacity. And to have a fellowship restored, that's one of the things, and and I say this carefully because I think I believe it, The fellowship that we now enjoy with God supersedes that which Adam did in the garden. In part because our righteousness that has been imputed to us is an exalted form of righteousness, and that's Christ's righteousness. After sin, after the fall, we can enjoy more intimate fellowship with God than prior to it. Because of what Christ has done. And I think that's a powerful example to show us that sometimes people can sin against us and what ends up... Have you ever had that happen in your marriage where there's conflict and when the conflict is resolved, it leaves you closer than what you had ever been before the conflict had ever occurred. It's because we get to express to one another attributes of God. Mercy. Forgiveness, grace, kindness, sympathy, compassion. And that expression towards one another cultivates a fellowship that is deep. And so I would encourage you tonight. Don't don't let sin and Satan and the consequences of sin... And pride and stubbornness. Create a wedge. Between those brothers and sisters. Those family members. That you do love. And most of all. Between you and God. Reconcile. Reconcile. I I plead with you on that behalf. For your own welfare. And for God's. What what a wonderful way to worship and honor God than for him to see us displaying to one another what he has displayed to us. A love that is better than this phony, shallow, transient, feeling-oriented emotion that is labeled Love today. I'll say this in conclusion, we'll be done tonight. Many of the things, the things that we have spoken about both tonight and in prior times are not necessarily meant to be done alone. When you're very angry, do you have the best judgment? When you're really emotionally invested in a situation, are you the most neutral arbiter? I believe this is what the church is for. If there is something that I am struggling to forgive someone over, and I am trying to apply what the Bible teaches, it is the better part of wisdom... To go to someone who is wiser and spiritual, more spiritual than I am, and say, I need help. I need help to guard against my emotions. I need help to apply the scriptures correctly. I need help because all I want to do is lash out in sin or hold on to everything in bitterness. There, there is a form of spiritual maturity that acknowledges when something is too great for me. People think of, mature, I can handle it. That's what maturity and strength is. I would say it's quite the opposite. It's when we recognize ourselves for what we are, and that is just but dust. Weak, sinful, selfish, self-seeking and going to someone and saying, Brother, help me carry this. I had a brother come to me one time and say this, I obviously cannot trust my own judgment given what I've done. You tell me what to do. And to me, that sin was not against me. It was quite a profound display of genuine repentance to me. Him getting so low that he says, I'm not even going to try to say what I think I should do because, based upon the sin I've committed, my judgment is very skewed. Help me. I hope that in this church you find brothers and sisters here that you're willing to humble yourself to when necessary and say, Here's what happened. What do you think? I'm not talking about gossip. I'm talking about truly trying to resolve the conflict and the sin that has created a wedge between you and God and you and others. Um, I think there are people in this church that can help me do that. That are stable, spiritual people. And I believe this body is meant for things like that. Not merely to come in a couple times a week and perform the activities that we normally do. But for the heavy things in life, God has put us together for that reason as well. And I hope that we would use that for that purpose.